Thank you for tuning into the Rowdy Cards podcast on RowdyCards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno, and today I have with us Ryan Daly joining us again for this episode, and today we're going to be talking about uh, some things happening in sports and some things happening in the hobby. So, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Happy 2019. Hey, thanks. Yeah, happy 2019 to you, too. Gosh, you know, uh, seems like time just flies right by us, dude. It's crazy. It feels like yesterday. I was like walking into my first day at work at a job in 2010. <laughs> now it's 2019. Where does the time go? That's the question. That's the real question here. Mm, yeah. So today on Deep Thoughts with Radicards.com. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so right into it here. Um, Kiyoshi Kimura, who owns a, a series of uh, uh, sushi franchises, I think... Um, he bought a 612-pound tuna for $3.1 million, and it's thought that the price correlates more to a PR stunt. At least that's what Darren Ravel was like. Like that's that's his prediction. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so than like you know making trying to make a profit off of the tuna because I think Darren was saying that, that, that to try to make a profit you have to sell the, the rolls for like like three figures, like 130 to 150 bucks a roll to make any, any, any money. <laughs> so I'm yes. like, I'm like, gosh, you know, it's interesting to do that. But if you have that kind of discretion, you got $158 uh, per roll to make a penny, uh, according to this tweet by Darren Ravel. Yeah. When, <laughs> when you first showed this to me, I thought this was like a famous Japanese baseball player that was, yeah, right. You know, forking over some big coin for some tuna. But then I, read into it and it's he's the supposed king of tuna <laughs> he's the guy uh, he's the tuna which guy. is a pretty cool title to have so i guess if there's a big tuna out there the king of tuna has to buy it so he probably overpaid but he's the king <laughs> he so he can do what he wants <laughs> i think i think that the pr thing is fine if you can swing that kind of thing financially and you want to get some eyeballs on what you're doing this yeah. kind of thing is a very good fast efficient way to do that um, and so I, I think it's kind of cool. Now, if I caught this tuna or if I bought this tuna and say didn't need it for resale, you know, maybe I stuff it and put it like over my fireplace or something. I, I, I'm trying to think like different uses of the tuna <laughs> besides cutting it up and serving it and, and sushi, which is delicious, by the way. But yeah, I think it's kind of cool. Uh, 612 pounds are huge, huge tuna. I mean, just gigantic. So yeah, they're amazing animals. And, uh, one of the best, if, you, if you're not into sushi and you, and you want to get into it, I think the different types of tuna are a great place to start. I remember the first time I had tuna when I was 15 or 16, I was so stupid. I thought that they would be putting like canned tuna on to some rice. <laughs> canned tuna and I didn't rice. Realize, I didn't realize it was a different, it was an actual like fresh cut of the, from the fish. It wasn't the 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 shitty canned stuff. <laughs> Isn't tuna a mammal? You said, Ooh, <laughs> I'm awful with this stuff. <laughs> so, okay. We know that whales are mammals, right? But, and I'm like, I'm like, I'm a tuna's Wikipedia page. <laughs> I, I think about that and I'm like, well, okay. Um, they're huge fish. They're at the top of the food chain. They're gigantic. They're very, very large, and and you know, someone. Okay, so let me tell you something. Speaking of food, which I don't know if you've ever had food before, but it's amazing. 
<laughs> so like for me, uh, when I when I make a, a dish I used to make in LA was uh, I'd, I'd I'd cook a pasta dish and like boil pasta, and then I would put a can of tuna. I'd like drain it all out or whatever and make it. It's like it's like dry. And I put a can of tuna in there and then um, olive oil and some salt and pepper and some basil and maybe some jalapenos or something um, or banana peppers or something. And then that would make for a really nice, healthy, energy-rich meal. And then I'd get like go skateboarding and I'd have enough energy to like skate for like two hours off of that, which is great. It's not something you'd want to eat and then just like take a nap. You'd like want to use that energy. But I remember though enjoying that meal because it's so flavorful and 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 rich and and very uh yes uh, energy energy um uh, rich in that way. So I appreciated that. Man, we are way off topic. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mean to uh to downplay how good canned tuna can be because canned tuna is super cheap, very healthy, and if you prepare it correctly, it can be very delicious. Um, same goes for sardines, etc. But when you buy sushi in a fine, or when you buy tuna in a fine sushi house, um, it is quite different from the canned experience. Um, so it's really good, good for uh, good for the king of tuna. I, I would love to to buy some sushi from him if I'm ever in Japan. I wonder. <laughs> mail order. You know. Oh God. <laughs> Ma- mail order sushi. <laughs> expect yeah. expect two to four weeks for delivery. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> It'll be fresh. It's fine. Right, 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 right. Um, so uh, moving on here, uh, Sidney Crosby experienced a bit of, uh, I guess they call it in hockey, is, it's called chirping, which in baseball it's like, ha- ha- was it heckling? In like comedy it's called heckling. heckling. chirping, yeah. I've, I've heard a couple different things throughout the different They're sports. Like synonyms or whatever, right? So essentially yeah. somebody in the crowd giving Sidney Crosby a hard time throughout a game, and Sidney Crosby responded in a very, I think, professional way you know absolutely after the, after the game was over he signed a, ho- a hockey stick and wrote inscribed on it you know um uh he, he basically said um <laughs> what did he say he says yeah yeah good chirps take it easy on me next time exclamation yeah <laughs> and then he signed and then he gave it to the guy that was that was heckling him i thought that was like i mean <laughs> that's pretty cool like really classy behavior not 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 making a scene just like you know being 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 the responsible professional that he is and I, I found that quite uh encouraging i mean i wouldn't it's not encouraging me to heckle Sidney crosby it's just encouraging to know that people like that exist um and then mm-hmm. we can be we can be better versions of ourselves uh when people give us a hard time for one reason or another so i thought that was cool yeah absolutely i've i've heard some awful things shouted at athletes over the years um and it's amazing that they can just kind of block everything out and focus on what they're trying to do but um super cool Sidney crosby who's like one of the biggest if not the biggest hockey player on earth right now so he didn't have to do that at all he could have just walked away but he didn't so this is really nice of him uh ryan you want to take on this next piece here Sure. Yeah. So the the baseball news has been fairly slow as we everyone's sort of waiting for the big free agents to to make their decisions before spring training. But uh, you say Kikuchi did sign with the Mariners, which um, he's sort of the next Japanese phenom to come over um, after seeing Shohei Otani last year. Um, Kikuchi 
didn't come over with as much fanfare as Otani because Kikuchi is just a pitcher, um, unlike Otani, who's the two-way star. Uh, Kikuchi is a little older, um, but he's very talented, one of the best pitchers in Japan. He'll get a chance to play with um, arguably the most legendary Japanese baseball player in Ichiro Suzuki, who's still technically on the Mariners roster. So that'll be fun to watch. Uh, he's a big left-handed pitcher, uh, looks very promising, uh, and he'll get, because the Mariners are in the same division as the Angels, um, he'll get to pitch against Shohei Otani at least a couple times. And as Otani is recovering from his Tommy John surgery, uh, 2019 will only see him hit. So it'll be a lot of Kikuchi-Otani matchups, which will be tons of fun i wonder if otani knows him like from the you know his baseball days like hey man how's it going <laughs> i i imagine they must know each other to some extent um and the the other sort of interesting layer to this is that kikuchi is a left-handed pitcher and one of the knocks against otani as he was developing in the mlb is that he was not good at hitting left-handed pitchers um he had a couple bright spots against left-handed pitching last year so um it'll be interesting to see how these two sort of match up because in theory kikuchi sort of has the upper hand here but i don't know we'll see that'll be interesting man i uh i hope that uh, we'll get to see some interesting matchups uh with the new left-handed pitcher now it's my understanding that they're pulling him up to the pro level right it's not just like hey we're gonna put you in triple a and to like develop and then we'll bring you up in 2020 yeah that's my understanding too Okay. Uh, and the Mariners are sort of in a semi-rebuilding mode. They they shipped off some of their big contracts. Um, they shipped off Robinson Cano. Um, so I think they they obviously want Kikuchi to sort of step up and and claim his role in the organization. Um, so I, I think he'll be on the starting roster for sure day one. That's really great. I just want to update everybody. A tuna is actually a fish. Okay. Not a mammal. I'm just doing some research here as we're talking, and uh, it looks like Pete, the general consensus is that, that tunas are fish. <laughs> so I know, the, I know everybody was just waiting to hear the news on that during this podcast. I know people are tuning in specifically for our fish talk, and so just wanted <laughs> to cover that. I think that's an important thing to discuss. You know, this is breaking news. This is, you know, we talk about the edgy topics, you know, and that's important. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's move on here. The other day I was uh, cleaning out my office, one of my bookshelves, and um, I've got a bunch of catalogs. I'd gotten like REA and just some auction house catalogs. Cool stuff. Nice to reference them from time to time. Um, trying to figure out what to do with them. They're Some of them are really thick and heavy, and others are like, you know, pamphlet style they're like you know i don't know 50 60 pages like smaller quite a bit smaller and so the question i had is do we keep these or trash them and like trash them and recycle because they're paper but you know what what do we do see the reason why i asked this is because if as a blogger content producer um I, I like to grab stuff and credit stuff from online sources so if i needed something from rea I'd go to rea.com or whatever and go to their website and then i'd grab their the image whatever it is and then credited on my blog if I'm using it. I can't do that with physical catalogs, you know, and I'm not one to make like collages and stuff to hang up on walls. I, you know, I've 
outgrowing that. But these books, these volumes, I mean, they're they're nice. They're really they're nice, but they're dense. They take up a lot of space. So, you know, if I if I if I get rid of them, how long should I wait? You know, and so I think about there's certain catalogs I get, and within a couple of weeks I, I throw them in the recycle bin. I get I'm on like a mailing list or whatever distribution list, but the ones that I get that are dense and big and they're mailed to me, um, you know, the question becomes how long do I keep them on file before I put them in the mm-hmm. recycle bin? Because there's something between like a novel about baseball and then a catalog selling product that's all this stuff's archived on these websites associated with the catalogs, right? So sure, you know, like. Not, not. This isn't a rhetorical question. It's like, really, if you know, if you have catalogs, what do you do with them, Ryan? Yeah, um, I would. You know, for for me personally, I've gotten rid of almost all of my catalogs. You have. Um, yeah. However, because you know, eBay sold listings only go so far, right? And there are other resources online where you can find out sold listings. Uh, but some of those are, you have to pay for it. It's a little more difficult. So, um, it is nice to have like a quick and dirty reference. Just, um, if you have something that's kind of esoteric and rare and you, you can't find it online and you have no idea sort of what it's worth, um, the, the hard copy catalogs are, are fun. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you know, most of the, like I said, the, the, the companies that produce these catalogs, all of them most if not all of them have websites where all of this data is archived. Mm. So then it kind of antiquates like the action of pulling a book off a shelf and going through the catalog and one page at a time looking for whatever, when you can just go into and do it all from, from your fingertips um, on your phone or on your, your, your keyboard at home. So I just wonder like if, if I have access to digital content that I can use for blogging or whatever else, you know, after a while, having the tangible item is just kind of loses its value, right? Like, yeah, you you, en- you can space. enjoy it for a month or two months, and then after that, it's you know now it's like now I the the online archives are more valuable to me than the, the physical tangible, um, yes, definitely uh, 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 books. So, and we're since we're we're both musicians, and we we both remember a time when you know, you could get like musician's friend and Sweetwater and all these cool catalogs totally. shipped to your house. Yeah. And that was really like the main conduit to finding out about products that weren't in your local music store. Mm-hmm. So, but now it's, it's, that's really, like you said, it's sort of antiquated and mm-hmm. I kept, I held on to those mostly for nostalgic purposes Sure, for a long time. But, um, I, I, those those things hit the recycle bin pretty hard about five or six years ago. Yeah, um, like Musician's Friend was one that I used to keep for at least a year before I'd toss it. I mean, the ones you mm-hmm. mentioned I've had. like, So I, I've seen I've had a lot of catalogs of various things and come through my my own personal ethos. So like things just, they, you know, they end up in my lap and I read them and then I kind of just set them aside. And then after a while, I'm like, well, the stack is getting pretty tall. I should probably purge some of this stack. So... Um, mm-hmm. whatever the case, I think, you know, what, if you're going to get rid of them, put them in the recycle bin, or if you really want to be kind of useful in a way, like beyond the recycling is, uh, if you do like a donation at like a YMCA ever add those to the donation pile and be like, Hey, yeah, these are some catalogs, kind of cool stuff. People want to like reference or get to know some of the companies that sell this stuff that 
is, I think, even more valuable if you can find a way to repurpose them that way uh, to get some hmm. of the young kids into into the card market. So I just wanted to touch on that because it's something that we all kind of battle is like magazines, subscriptions, and catalogs, like the stuff that comes in the mail. Um, how long do we hang on to it? Because magazines don't really have a, uh, they don't have an appreciation value. It's very linear. You'd like you pay three ninety nine this year and 20 years, magazine will still be worth about three ninety nine. Because it's mm-hmm. worth it's worth the value of the paper it's printed on. Now we're talking about modern stuff, not like vintage 50s, 60s, 70s, like that era. You know, like Sports Illustrated number one is the first issue is still valuable. The first Beckett, like that was printed in '84, that still has value. Um, so there's 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 value in some of this stuff, but uh, for the most part, the stuff that comes through our you know um, possession. A lot of this modern stuff just is, you know, it's just stuff. So you just you enjoy it for what it is, and you just kind of move on. So I just want to touch on that. Um, moving on here. So price guides. Let's talk about that. Um, now in the current market, we, you know, we go off of values from eBay completed sold listings. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, now, not every sold listing is going to reflect the current market, right? Because if someone lists something for, say, like that uh, Paul Goldschmidt auto orange refractor, that was sold immediately, but it didn't reflect actual market value. Actual right. market value for that is like $8,000. Yeah, that was an anomaly. Yeah, but if you set something up auction style and it's 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 listed correctly, as in it, that the stuff's titled correctly, then the the market has a... a a, a chance to, and it's it's listed at the right time. It'll end at the right time. The market it gives the market a chance to really um, uh, bid and and uh, create a situation that will uh, produce an outcome that will reflect actual market value. At least the, the probability of such will be much higher in that capacity. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, price guides, printed price guides, they they have kind of lost their value. I'd say like twenty years ago, they sort of like fell off. Like as when eBay started to pick up, eBay was you know created in 95 and started to pick up in 98 now it's like as big as it is ever now so but by 98 you started to see like card shows sort of drop off you know um people subscribing less to beckett media the the, the monthly publication so you know there are certain times when referencing a price guide a printed one is is valuable for information not so much pricing information but like actual description information like product identification information that kind of thing it's like the big book, the Almanac that Beckett produces once a year. That's actually a pretty valuable resource for that for for that reason. Same with the SCD, the standard catalog. That mm-hmm. that's a really good one too. I like I like to have both of those in my in my my library, which I do have. Yeah. The last time I bought an annual from Beckett was 2010, and then SCD in 2011. So I have still those books. So they're not updated to current, obviously, but the stuff in them is still very valuable to me if I ever want to get like, you know more information on something there's always a little description talking about this card they might have like insertion ratios that to me is way more valuable than any pricing information that Beckett could provide me so a part of me feels like these printed price guide the companies that produce them should just focus on information identification information just have little blocks of text talking about the product and then leave the pricing up to like you know, um, VCP and eBay completed solds and worth point and everything else. And just let the market kind of like absorb identification information. So the question that I said that I, that I have a post here on the podcast is when does it make sense to buy a current price guide 
And when does it make sense to buy a back issue of a price guide? That's the mm. question. Yeah, I, I would just, um, if you don't have one already sitting around, would you agree that you should just buy one like as, as soon as possible just to have <clears throat> just to have the most recent price guide? Because uh, if you go to shows, you go to hobby shops, I mean, people that run um, tables at shows and people that run hobby shops, they, they have these things floating around and they, they do reference them. So there is some some value to sort of know like what the price points are right in these sort of catalogs so here's here's my answer to that there's a couple of different ways to go about this okay, okay. The, the the first thing comes about i don't buy the latest version because in mm-hmm. a year it won't be the latest version anymore and if i keep them for say like nine years there's no sense in buying the latest version but unless so do you use, do you try and save money and, and buy older versions? You don't have to save money when you're buying older versions. Let me give you a perfect example. Okay. There's a coin price guide that's a, like a book. It's like 750 pages, and it's just for coins. And the one that the, the current one is like say 30 bucks, but the one from 2017 is nine dollars. And you go further back, it's cheaper. But how much do the coin prices really change that much in a couple of years? It hasn't really been that long a time. Granted, my 2010 annual Beckett, the prices are way out of date. Like Strasburg stuff doesn't sell what it did back in 2010, you know? And so I understand that, but I'm not using it for pricing. I'm using it for information. So if you just want something from information and you don't need the latest one because you're, you're not buying Bowman Chrome every year, you're buying like vintage stuff all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and you're looking for, say, your type collector. I mean, this is, is going to be very situation-specific based on the type of collector that you are. So... For price guides, I think that like the most recent one I would buy would be the one that's two years old from now. So for, for me, it would be the 2017. If I were to update my 2010, I would get the 2017 version. But really, if you want to like, if you want to find, you get, get into yourself in a situation where you can get the latest one for pretty cheap, if you go to the national, wait till the last day and go to the Beckett booth, sometimes you might get yourself in a situation where they're, they want to sell you one for, at a bargain because they don't want to take it back with them because those books are pretty heavy. So sure. there's that situation. But if you, if you don't find yourself at the National, which is a pretty expensive endeavor, um, two years out, I think, is, is fine if you don't want to buy the latest one, but you want one that's you know affordable and still has relatively accurate information in it. Information will be not dissimilar from one older than that, but the pricing information, obviously, is going to be changing, um, or at least that's the expectation anyway. I can't imagine they're cha- updating those prices. It's like a thousand-page book every mm-hmm. single year. So... Um, a lot of that's a lot of bandwidth manpower but <laughs> two years i think is fair for me uh, looking at something two years old like if i got the, the the coin price guide it would be like the 2017 for nine bucks instead of the modern one for 30 mm-hmm. so that's just kind of how i would be dealing with back issues with modern current stuff if i were buying modern every single year it would probably make a lot more sense for me to buy the latest example of the book right hmm. and just have it on the shelf for like me, I still have my 2010 on my bookshelf. It's still part of my, my library. And it will stay there because I don't, I don't really have intentions on updating a new book anytime soon, which, you know, it might not be a bad idea to do that, but I just it's not mission-critical priority at this time. So Sure. What about yeah, you? And I, I've heard um, from some collectors that... From collectors that, that donate a significant portion of their collection to charity... Um, they will use price guides as a a nice reference for the tax write-off that you can get from that. 
Um, so that's another potential uh, positive thing of having a price guide around. So you can say, I donated, you know, X amount of cards from this set. And according to this price guide, they're worth this much. So that's how much I'm going to write off. That's an interesting sort of use for the price guide. Um, I don't really donate enough to to necessitate that kind of detail. Mm-hmm. But um, if that's something that you do, I would certainly reference the price guide um, and their prices in that in that scenario. Sure. Other things, other other uses for the the, the price guides is that. And this would make sense for the uh, one of the bigger annual books because Becca doesn't just produce the big annual Bible type book. They also have this like other version of the book that's like more abridged, that's you know much thicker than the, the monthly. Um, I've got one of those too that was given to me, um, so it's less information, less to carry around. But if you collect, if you're a set builder, and you go to a show and you want a checklist, you know I've seen guys print stuff off, and make their own binders, and they carry that around and check things off as they go. That's that's fine. And then other guys I've seen carry these books around with them and they just highlight as they go. So that's like the information's already built into the book. You know, it prevents you from making mm-hmm. your own book. So I, I found that in that situation, it makes a lot of sense to have a book available to you. So just another pro, you know, pro of, of getting one of the annuals into the, into the library. So just kind of like when I think about this, because I value price guides, not for their values, but for the information. I value them. I do. And here's the other mm-hmm. point too, is that if you have been looking for something for so, so long and you don't have a reference point for value, like say an 89 Donruss blue chips card or, or, you know, some old obscure Venezuelan thing. You haven't never seen an example. We were talking about the Nolan Ryan last night, Ryan, you and I, and, um, yeah, 72. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we talk about certain really kind of obscure, uh, rare, it's almost like mythic, mythic rare type type stuff. Um, and if you don't have a reference point for value, it does help to have some, some semblance of value somewhere printed or, or found online. If you yes. can, if it's not event found online and it isn't print, that's where you can start a conversation. Well, Beckett says it's worth 1300 bucks, but in the actual market, I expect this to close around six to $700, uh, because we don't have a reference point. How about we settle at 900, you know, like these are the kinds of conversations that I would expect to have. You know, and sure. it, it, how badly I want the card and my buying power at the time, I might be willing to pay something at face value. You know, between or I, I like to, I like to think about things as ranges, like values and ranges, because there's no there's never any hard, you know, idealistic price point. This is always going to be fifteen hundred bucks. Like there's always you know, like mm-hmm. a certain car might be. Well, the range in that is thirteen hundred bucks to sixteen hundred bucks. Like all the instances I've seen this sell have been between that, give or take, about one hundred and fifty bucks. So yep. I kind of see these ranges and I think, well, okay, I base the range. I look at the range and I think, all right, let's base it off. Of, let's, let's, let's couple that with the quality condition, you know, edges, surface, you know, the printing flaws or, you know, what do the corners look like? What's the registration look like? And just kind of, you know, play with that a little bit. And you can come up with a price point that makes sense for a negotiation or a counter counter offer or something like that. So price guides have value, even though we have so much access to recorded sales online. Yeah, but and and like you said, there's there's been some times where my myself and I'm sure you've encountered this as well. But if you go on eBay or you go on to whatever other online retailer that you find cards on, and you type in a card, and there's no results. Yeah, it's just not there. Right. And it's obviously a rare card that you're looking for, which is great. Um, but that's where the price guide sort of comes into it comes into hand because 
you have like this sort of all encompassing point of reference to where obviously, like you said, there's, it's not necessarily what you could sell the card for or what you're going to pay for the card. Um, but it's a starting point at the very least. And, um, that's where some of the online options sort of fall short because if it's not listed, it's not listed. It's just not there. Um, so they do have their value. And if you don't have one, you should at least buy like the basic Beckett, you know, just they're cheap enough. Yeah. And like I said, if you want, if you want to buy the latest one, they're available, you know, years back, Amazon has yeah. them. You can get them on eBay. I mean, just you might even get them direct through Beckett. Sometimes they sell old back issues, but you know, whatever the case, it's just nice to have some kind of reference on the bookshelf, just something. Absolutely. And, so, and, I, and I will say I, I have so much uh, respect for Beckett just because I remember starting collecting as a kid and when the new Beckett came out it was like Christmas morning. Oh, it's the greatest and thing ever. So that, I mean, this, ever. Is, this is before um, eBay really hit its stride and before um, my family had a high-speed internet connection. <laughs> so... The old analog days of um, flipping through the, the, the Beckett's and, and reading the stories they had and, and reading through the prices and everything. So. Loved it. I used to I used to camp out by the Christmas tree, and I would just <laughs> I would sleep under the tree and I would have my Beckett next. I remember '92 the Beckett that showed Nolan Ryan in like cowboy attire. Remember that one? <laughs> Back in '92. Oh, you weren't collecting in '92. You're like I wasn't. You were pretty young at the time, and I so was, yeah, I was two years old but so that you probably wouldn't have had that issue at two i wouldn't imagine <laughs> no but i remember some some classic beckett covers i remember when sean green signed with the dodgers oh yeah beckett put out a cover with like jackie robinson and sandy koufax and um sean green on the cover they they're all at like, equal talents everybody yes, knows that. obviously and all, all three of those individuals <laughs> have gone on to be hall of famers um but right a, there, well, during the home run chase, tons of Mark McGuire Beckett's. Yeah, uh, I remember. Well, at so, 95, yeah. it was it was Hideo Noma was the big one in 95. Oh. And so, I mean, that's expected. The new rookies come up. They're going to be featured on the front cover. I always liked, I mean, I would like, I would study those Beckett's when, back in the 90s, like early mm -hmm. to mid 90s. I would read them over and over and over and look at every single price, every every key listing and I would start to collect the, the, the cards that I had. I would look through my collection and see if I had the cards that were worth 20 cents. They were still listed. <laughs> oh, I got that Mike Lieberthal from 1991 score, you know, like I got to file that or, oh, the, the Carl Everett, you know, that needs to be filed because it's listed. So I would, you know, this is kind of how I'd process my collection was I'd go to Beckett as the benchmark and then I would go through my collection and see what I had, you know, what was mm -hmm. valuable. So that's a really cool talking point that, you know, there's still value in, price guides for various situations and you know reference points that's what it comes down to is just you know um although we have so much access to recorded data sales there are still value to printed price guides so there you have it totally yep uh moving on psa authenticates a piece of paper signed by both babe ruth and michael jordan what do you think about this this is there's two sides to this are this little yes thing what are you thinking <clears throat> I I would love to know the story because like first of all I, when I first saw this I thought how why would you <laughs> mess with something that Babe Ruth had signed why totally. wouldn't have you just um Get got that else. authenticated and gone from there but I suppose if you're going to have anybody else touch and manipulate that piece of paper it's got to be Sean Green it's got to be Sean Green <laughs> or maybe Michael Jordan. <laughs> so 
I, I guess I can see the the owner's point of view, um, but I, I'd also love to know how it went down. Like, did he go to an autograph signing and then he he said, "Hello, Mr. Jordan, can you sign this piece of paper? Please be careful because um, Babe Ruth also signed it." <laughs> like, they were both signed in person at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little known fact. Uh, okay, so here's the thing with me on this. Okay, I'm of the school of thought that if it's touched by Babe Ruth, signed by Babe Ruth, let it, let it just it's it's retired from additional contact from other anything. Yeah, yeah that's get what it I thought authenticated, too. archive it, sell it, do just whatever you got to do with it. Just keep it intact as it is. You know, less is more. Um, and then have Jordan sign, like you said, a, another piece of paper, and then have two separate pieces of paper, and you can discuss them together. Um, so I, that's, that's more my school of thought. Uh, so I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, here we are talking about it on a podcast, so it, it makes coverage. I think it's kind of a cool talking point, mm-hmm. but to me, if I had something signed by Babe Ruth, if I had to sign by anybody, think anybody else, I feel like I'm doing that piece of paper or whatever that is a disservice. Even if it is Michael Jordan, I'm like, Michael Jordan deserves his own piece of paper. Babe, there you Ruth, go. Babe Ruth deserves his own piece of paper. So I, you know, I don't know. I, that's kind of just where I go. Whatever the case, if someone hooked me up with a PSA authenticated paper signed by the two of them, I wouldn't complain for a second. Sure. You know, <laughs> I'd be completely happy with this thing. Um, yeah. I'm sure it'd look awesome in a slab. You know, that's the other thing too, is it like they're talking points. Yeah. I mean, these are the sorts of things that I wish I was like a fly on the wall at the PSA headquarters, just to see the sort of items they get to evaluate and authenticate. Um, it must be, a mind-blowing place to work sometimes because these things come through and i mean you've never seen anything like this true and, true um <clears throat> yeah the story is very intriguing i'd also love to know how babe ruth ended up signing it was it like handed down to this person you know did they buy it you know babe, like, babe ruth signed it after michael jordan signed it <laughs> so so here's the thing with the PSA is like if if PSA sees it all, right? So they do. When they when this stuff comes through, are they like kind of desensitized by like, oh great, another Ruth Jordan auto? You know, like like yeah. that's what I think about is just like they see so much come through the pipeline that that <laughs> they're, they're processing so many items a day that that I mean, it's lucky we even get to see a tweet that showcases something from the office, you know, mm-hmm. because they're working so hard. That's yeah. kind of what I think is that is that um, uh, th- 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 this 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 kind of stuff is really cool, but I, I I honestly don't know how floored people at PSA are anymore because they've seen so many things. Yeah, they, I mean, they, I'm sure that they are. They have to just remain professional and objective, and you know, if, if you're going to forge anything, it'd be a Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan piece of paper yeah i mean those are highly forged those are highly forged like signatures highly you know they're they're right behind the sean green forgeries i mean that's just gonna be right on the that's that's a problem it's a major don't get me started on the sean green forgeries (laughs) sean green's a uh, topic of conversation i don't know if you guys have paid attention here yet but he's uh he's one of the key topics for this podcast (laughs) 2019 is going to be um, all year, Sean Green it's podcasts. All, he, well, okay, look, look. I think he's got Hall of Fame written all over him. Totally. <laughs> he hit 44 home runs one year, I think. Yeah, I think that was. It's like right around the time when Luis Gonzalez and Brady Anderson were knocking some like 50 plus dingers. Was, yeah. Wait, was Luis Gonzalez? Did he even have a 50 a 50 uh, a 50 uh, 
I think he hit 56 one year. Really? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd bet five bucks on that number. I don't know what year, but I want to oh, say he did. It interesting. I'm pulling his stats up right now. Uh, let's see here. 57. You would have lost that bet. <laughs> <laughs> he, went, he went from 31 home runs, and before that, 26, 23, 10, and 15. So, um, 57. Yeah, that's not suspicious or anything. Uh, he wasn't even the league leader that year. I'm sure it was. It was. Uh, well, that was um, 2001. That's Bonds, probably. 2001. I think Bonds started hitting him hard in 2003, wasn't it? <laughs> Here we are pulling up stats from Baseball Reference because that's that's what we do. Okay, so yeah, 2001. That was definitely Bonds at 73 home runs. Yeah, that was yeah. the one. That was the one year that he had the most per year. You're right. You're so right. Yeah. You're spot on. Could you imagine how bummed you'd be? Like, I hit 57 home runs. And you're overshadowed by Bonds. I must be, I must be the leader, but nope. <laughs> this guy hit 73. So. Oh, man. So gnarly. <laughs> so gnarly. And how, wait, what was the, who was the, Sean Green? Yeah, Sean Green hit 44 um, for the Dodgers, I want to say. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, 49. 49. In 2001. 2001 was a strong year for hitters. I think that was also the, was that Brady Anderson's uh, breakout year for home runs? Let's see, two thousand, uh, two thousand. No, his was ninety six at fifty. Gosh, that's a lot. And then King Caminiti also had a breakout year. Look at us. He did. Look at us yeah, reviewing all the classics. Yeah, home runs. He hit a forty year, a forty home run year in ninety six as well, along with Brady Anderson. Anywho, let's get back to it here. <laughs> Um, I remember, um, I remember quick anecdote. I remember sitting in Dodger stadium right next to the, uh, left field valve hole and Sean Green hit, uh, a near home run. It ended up going foul right towards where I was sitting mm. and I had a plate of nachos in my lap Yeah, and I was a dumb kid and I just couldn't get the coordination together to try and catch it. But it, it hit the seat right behind me oh my and it God. ricocheted into God knows where. So I didn't get the foul ball, but that's that's probably as close as I've ever been to a foul ball. Wait, 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 wait. Did did you still get to enjoy your nachos? Absolutely. I well, did that, not sacrifice the nachos. <laughs> that's that the most important thing, man. I yeah. mean, when I was younger, the nacho with like the liquid cheese on there Oof. that with the like fluorescent yellow orange color, and then the mm -hmm. the like little little like plastic container of uh, pickled jalapenos. I mean, oh, that yeah. was that was like. That was like a really classic meal of my youth. I'd enjoy that at any instance I could, any opportunity. Yeah, so you got to, you know, make make priorities in life. And at that time, the Sean Green foul ball was just was just not the priority. But nacho, I do remember that nachos coming, were the priority. Nachos were the priority. But he hit this mammoth fly ball that went right over my head, um, and that that must have been two thousand. One, two thousand two, maybe. Oh but yeah! Wow. When he was a, a newly minted Dodger. Yeah. And so that was like shortly thereafter you started collecting baseball cards, was it not? Oh yeah. And that's that's why I, I currently have a nice collection of Sean Green cards that you that you can't even give away. <laughs> that I can't do anything with. <laughs> if you're listening and you like Sean Green, you know. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know. I I will pay. I'll pay shipping on these bad boys. I'll pay you <laughs> to take them off of my collection. Yes. Take them out of my collection. <laughs> Please. The number one 1986 Topps football set in the PSA set registry 
uh, clothes. It was all PSA 10s, everything. It made its way to eBay uh, about a week, I guess, a little while back. Closed with 43 bids at just north of $79,000. Woo! Really amazing Significant. Stuff. That's Huge. crazy. But to be honest, man, here's the thing, Ryan. I honestly think that that is a good price. <laughs> I think in 20, 30, 40 years, people are going to be like, man, if only I had just 79000 Can you imagine just back then it was only 79000 a whole set of this? Mm-hmm. Like, think about a set of, I don't know, 69 tops, all PSA 10. And you're thinking to yourself, man, if that was only $80,000, right? Amazing. Of course, that would close at huge dollar figures now. But you got so much time that has passed, but only 33 years. And this set is condition sensitive, right? So you've, you've got um, a lot of off-centering. Centering mm-hmm. is the biggest kicker top to bottom on this set. Uh, but because the green goes to the borders, you've got you've got um, uh, flakiness that happens along the edges and corners is very susceptible to to to. to it's very condition sensitive this set, and so um, and big rookies. It's, the set is full of excellent rookie cards. You got Jerry Rice as as the key, Steve Young, um, Reggie White, Boomer Sison, Joe a, Montana. Well, yeah, you got a slew of stars in this set too. So you've got a, just a just a mess of really cl- great cards in this set, and so um, uh, and I'd be happy with nines and eights of a lot of those. Just I'm fine, you know. I mean, Jerry Rice rookies and, and eights are very affordable right now. They're very very affordable, um, and so uh, it's interesting to see this close for this price and me not being that shocked about it, knowing the significance of this set. It's also the set the '86 tops is highly collected. A lot of people put this set together. My buddy Dan put this set together. And so um, it's it's so collected. And so I've seen 43 bids at just, just shy of 80, 80 grand is is seems high, but to me it seems very realistic. And also it also seems like it's going to be considered a potential bargain at some point in the future. Mm. What do you is do you think that Jerry Rice is the most collectible card from the set? It's the the yeah yes it's the uh, it's the cornerstone of the set it's like an 80, 86 Fleer Jordan like the Jordan sure. is the cornerstone of that set uh, the Rice is the big one and Young is is behind the Rice in terms of collectability like what people are buying and paying a lot for that's that's sure. those, are the, those are the two big cards and and you know as a fan of the Boomer size and I, I I that's the card I, I tend to gravitate toward the, the the Reggie White's another big one but not nearly as collected as the Rice or, or the the um, the young so just want to touch on that because i think that's a significant sale in and it's of its, huge in and of itself yeah. not just in price but of what it is you know the full set psa 10 i mean that's i always think if you collect sets in psa 10 you have to have the space to, to to store them that's the biggest hurdle for me is like the one of the drawbacks for me is you know the reason why i don't collect psa registry i don't do the registry thing is because i don't have the space for it you know, I barely have the space for the stuff I do collect, and so I try to keep it pretty tight too. Like I try to keep pretty minimal um, as a singles guy. That's just kind of how I collect. So I understand the value in doing the PSA thing. It's a really great investment potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like this was a big educational opportunity for me because I didn't really know a whole lot about this set. I'm still sort of learning about football cards in general because that on its own is like a whole other world separate from baseball cards um it just has it has its own historical context and its own kind of timeline that you have to follow sure um so the 86 tops was something i learned to be significant um 
thanks to this auction, really. And we've talked about this on podcasts before. It's like there are these crazy auctions that are way out of your price range. Like I'm, I'm sure most of the listeners can't afford 80 grand to drop on this sort of thing. But it, there's value in learning that these things exist and that they're significant. And if you're interested, they're available. Um, and maybe you're like me and didn't know this sort of set was around and was um, so historically meaningful. So that's why I, I, t I try to, to look at expensive things just because like I don't want to buy them. I just want to know how much they're worth, um, like what the market is for them. Mm -hmm. You know, there's it's 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 important, I think, whether or not you're going to buy them. It's like kind of a moot point. You just educate yourself on the market. Yeah, you bring up a good point. And it's something that I like to always remind myself is that that I learning and, and building your knowledge base, you know, the knowledge transfer of hobby research is really important for me as someone who tries to get an idea of full market value across the spectrum. It's really difficult to track, but I, I, I put a lot of time in on a day-to-day -day basis because I, I, I like to keep tabs on what's hot, what's selling, what's doing well, um, what's kind of cold, you know, what's not as, you know, what's a good time to buy. Um, because everybody, you know, we've all fallen into the trap of buying at the wrong time. You know, buying, you know, Bain's rookie in PSA 9 and 10 right now is a bad time to do that. But like just a month ago, they were like 15, 20 bucks for nines, mm -hmm. you know, cheap. Now they're nines are like hundreds. <laughs> it's just 200 bucks for a nine. It's just so weird to me. So it's not weird. It's predictable. But you, like you see you have a lot of eyeballs on something, you're going to find people talking about it and they're going to go and search it and they're going to buy it. And so it, it draws traffic to those, to those items during those times. But regardless if you're in the market to buy or not, it's good to know what is doing well, even if you're not collecting. So I don't collect a lot of football, but I like football cards. I, I, mm -hmm. I plan to buy more of them in my life, but I just, they're just right now kind of down the priority. But I, I'm aware of a lot of the large key cards from the 70s and 80s and even back and so in 90s too. And so I'm aware of what's hot. You know, I, I like, I know I'm aware of the certain cards, but I've only just, because I've been spent, I've spent time investigating the market on what's what, because when I see showcase after showcase featuring the same football card, I'm like, okay, well that has to be significant. Let's figure out why. And so I'll go online and see like what's hot, what's selling, which cards are the popular, which ones are important, whatever. Um, the 86 tops football set I've, I've known about since, gosh, I probably became aware of the set in 94 uh, when I was living in Virginia for a year and I went to my buddy's my buddy's house, Casey, and his older brother had um, stacks of 86 football on his bedside mantle. And I was like, man, that's, those are, those look old. What are these? Like 86 tops. I was like, wow. And that's when I first had exposure to the Reggie White. And I got to know the, the classic uh, white lined, like football pattern that they have on the borders. A really classic design of this set. I really just like the colors. They're great. But mm -hmm. the benefit is the knowledge transfer, getting to know something that you don't necessarily collect. Totally. You know, like I've been doing a little bit of coin research lately. I've, when I was before I got into baseball cards in 1988, I collected coins and stamps, and so that's just something on the side I, I like to learn about, even though I don't I don't collect those things anymore. But just to know kind of what's hot, what's popular. I mean, I just like collectibles, so I I just kind of focus on, you know, what's being, you know, it's what's selling. And one of the bigger auction houses online sold a Napoleon Bonaparte signed letter. I thought that was cool. Oh, Molly. Yeah, so that's kind of cool stuff. You don't see that every day, right? So, or like Michael Jackson's socks. 
you know, kind of like <laughs> really obscure things to collect, but they're collectible. And so just becoming aware of stuff is, I think, important just, just for, you know, knowing. It's like um, when you go to college, you have to take a bunch of core classes, but it makes you more well-rounded. You like have talking points and you can just think about things in a different way. I think about that in the hobby too. When you're not collecting your primary, you just go out and kind of research something else for a while just to get to know, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte signature on a letter or like, like I was saying, like stuff that Michael Jackson was wearing on tour, like interesting, weird, kind of obscure side topics. So I just sure. want to touch on that. I think it's a, this is kind of one of those things. It's like, Oh, that's cool. Now you know about it. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't hurt to just kind of peruse eBay or any other like online auction house and see what's around. Even if you're not going to buy anything, just kind of see what's available. If you're into basketball, maybe research some hockey cards. If you're into football, maybe research some baseball cards. It's like the, the hobby really has no end to right. how much you can learn. And, um, I, I found a lot of interesting tidbits of historical information just from kind of going outside of my comfort zone and, and looking at, at sports cards, um, that I, w I don't really want to buy, but I'm just sort of curious about. Yeah. The other piece of that too, is it, is it, it doesn't have to just revolve around sports either. There's a, there's a large like Pokemon and magic, the gathering arm that's used a lot of collectible cards and those two, you know, some people don't take that stuff seriously, but they're trading cards, just like baseball cards. Ooh, the Pokemon stuff. That could be like a potential whole other podcast topic because totally those, we could, we those could, we could really, cover that. Yeah. Those, those have really jumped off yeah. recently. I think the Pokemon Go app kind of brought interest back to the cards because they kind of fell off for a while and Yu-Gi-Oh yeah. sort of would like took over. And then now Pokemon's back in the market as like a, a, a category leader in that in that realm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I wouldn't compare Pokemon to Magic the Gathering because Magic, I think, is the pinnacle of, of the RPG trading card kind of category and everything kind of came after it. Sure. And yeah. So They've been around longer. And... Way longer. And so... Yeah. Um, it's it's we, we we might discuss this in a future podcast because I think there's some st talking points in here, kind of talking about maybe some of the bigger cards, you know, what to look for, this kind of thing. There, there's some content that we could we could discuss, but that 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 aside, maybe that for another time. That covers this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, uh, Ryan. Do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I'm just bundled up here in in cold California, <laughs> waiting for spring training to start. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's all I have for now. <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining me, Ryan. I appreciate it, buddy. Thanks. <laughs> uh, thank you for tuning in to the Rowdy Cards podcast and RowdyCards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno, and until next time, enjoy collecting. If you like this content, please subscribe. Thank you. Enjoy collecting.